This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Hannah Slarks, and today I'm joined by Andrew Edge. He's going to talk to me about his victory in the EAT in Swiss Re. Andrew, what is this case about? Yeah, so in short, this is a case which provides guidance on the circumstances where an otherwise without prejudice letter is admissible in evidence before the court or tribunal because it constitutes what's called unambiguous impropriety. So one of the issues in this case is where does the court draw the line between genuine offers of settlement being made and threats being made? Because this wasn't one of those cases that was about really shocking blackmail or perjury, was it? It was actually a pretty normal-looking WP letter. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that is fair to him. And that was certainly the view that I took when I read it. But that wasn't the view that the employment judge at first instance took in this case. So let's go back to the beginning. What is without prejudice privilege? So lot to unpack here. Generally, communications between parties which are genuinely aimed at the settlement of an existing dispute are inadmissible evidence should that matter later come to trial. It makes no difference whether the evidence in question is relevant, whether it contains admissions or concessions. That basic position is known as the without prejudice rule. And that's designed to help parties feel that they can speak freely when they're trying to settle. Yes. So at the heart of the rule is this conflict between two competing public policies. The first is the public interest of promoting the settlement of disputes rather than parties being required to litigate cases to a finish. It being really important that when parties negotiate, they're able to fairly put on the table their positions without having to worry that whatever it is that they say during the negotiation will later be used against them in court. As against that is the conflict of the conflicting public interest of there being full discovery between the parties of litigation so that when the court comes to determine the matters, there is a public interest in having all relevant documents before the court. In general, the way without prejudice rule works is that the public policy interest of encouraging settlement outweighs the public policy interest of having all relevant evidence before the court so that you're able to encourage parties to be able to settle their disputes. But that's not a blank check, is it? You can't write whatever you want in without prejudice correspondence. That's the general rule. That's the without prejudice rule. But there are exceptions to it. And the famous exception to it is where the conduct of one of the parties on the privileged occasion amounts to perjury, blackmail or other unambiguous impropriety. And where you abuse that privileged occasion, that provides the court or the tribunal with the ability to say, well, without prejudice rule no longer applies. And therefore, what you have said or what you have done on this occasion is admissible before the court. So there's a lot of case law out there on what will and won't cross a line in a WP context. What's different about the employment context? The issue is, of course, is that in employment law in particular, there are all sorts of defences that employers are encouraged or are able to make. So you have 
Davison Atkins, you have Boston Deep Sea Fishing, you have Polky, which are all designed to be the employer saying to the employee, we have discovered you've done X, Y, and Z. That can be read as being an, an accusation or an, or an allegation. And because of those things, we would have dismissed you. We would have dismissed you in any event, and therefore any compensation that you might be entitled to is reduced or extinguished. What makes this a particularly hot topic, employment litigation, is that because of those various defences, for example, Davis Natkins and, and Polky, employers are able to, if not encouraged, to be able to, where you have a departing senior employee, to, for example, go through their email accounts to see if there is examples of gross misconduct. So we have seen, for example, in fairly recent litigation, often involving football managers for some reason, that where they are wrongfully dismissed, the employer will then go through the entirety of that individual's email system to see if it can find racist jokes or pornography or those sorts of things to provide the employer with a defence to say, well, your wrongful dismissal complaint for X squillion pounds, where you say that you've had a fixed term contract for the next five years or whatever, is a bad one because we were entitled to dismiss you by reason of this racist or sexist or whatever conduct. So very often it is permissible and appropriate for employers to run these sorts of defences. And what that means is, is that very often in without prejudice negotiations and in without prejudice letters, the employer will be making or raising concerns or making allegations saying to the employee, well, we've discovered this about you. This is going to cause all sorts of problems. Wouldn't you rather just accept X number of pounds and we can draw a line under all of this? That's probably the first reason why in employment law, this is such a hot topic. The second one is, is, of course, that we are increasingly in a massively regulated society. So on the facts of, of this case, Mrs. Summer was regulated by the FCA. So where serious concerns or allegations are raised about someone behaving in a particularly serious way, that can have much wider connotations than simply what is and isn't recoverable before the employment tribunal. So, uh, where you start in these negotiations is very often with the employer saying, well, what about the way that you've behaved? And wouldn't it be better if we just drew a line under this? And that can raise serious concerns. And that's when you get into this question of what's a threat? Yeah. And what's a relevant threat? So at what point, or indeed, is it even possible where an employer raises legitimate concerns and raises um, allegations against an employer. At what point do those allegations stop being permissible behaviour in litigating employment disputes? And at what point do they turn into seeking to put impermissible pressure or making unfounded allegations against what might be a litigant in person? At what point does that stop being uh, behaviour that is covered by the without prejudice rule and at what point does that constitute or start to constitute unambiguous impropriety? So tell us about this case. It was a discrimination case, right? Yeah, that's, that's the reason, very often the reason why, especially in discrimination complaints, these sorts of issues are, are so important. Because very often what the employee will want to do, and as indeed happened here, is the employee will want to say, I've been victimised by you, employer. And the way that you victimised me or what you did to victimise me is contained in this without prejudice letter. 
And what that means is, is that there's a preliminary hearing that then takes place, as it took place in this case, which is designed to determine whether or not the employee can even rely upon the very thing that he wants to say is the unfavourable treatment that is at the heart of his victimisation complaint. If the employee can't rely upon that, then his victimisation complaint can't even get off the ground, which is another reason why these issues are, are so important in employment law and in particular discrimination law. So in this case, Mrs. Summer, who was the claimant at first instance, was employed by Swiss Re as a political risk underwriter in an FCA-regulated position. Three months after returning from maternity leave, she was told that her position was at risk of redundancy. And this caused her to raise a series of grievances. In doing so, in raising those grievances, she copied various documents, not only to her own personal email address, i.e. her email address, which was not part of her the company email system. But she also blind copied the grievance itself and the appended documents to her husband's email address. Whoopsie, Mrs. Summer. Yes, not ideal behaviour. And unfortunately, some of the documents that she copied both to herself and to her husband, included personal information of one of her or several of her colleagues and also confidential information belonging to the employer, which included things like potential business opportunities for the employer. So the usual sorts of things that courts and tribunals are are very quick to recognise as being confidential information. Perhaps even worse than that, certainly when I presented it to the EAT, that I made clear that worse than that was that when she was challenged about what she had done, having blind copied these documents to her husband, she informed her employer that the documents hadn't been copied to any third party. And of course, understandably, through the employer's eyes, Mr. Summer, who was not employed by them, third party and receiving confidential information would now be in a wider domain that they didn't have control of. So the employer would feel that that was a lie and she would probably feel that that was a mistake in how she answered that question. Certainly the allegation was that it was, it was untrue. And that allegation itself forms the basis of the employer in the without prejudice letter writing to her to suggest that she'd behaved without integrity, which could become, or if proved, would have become a regulatory issue for the FCA, potentially. Importantly, certainly in the eyes of the Employment Tribunal, in a letter at the beginning of January 2021, so when this behaviour was first being investigated, an internal HR partner within the employer described the claimant's behaviour as being a low-level data breach. And the Employment Tribunal was of the view that there was therefore a stark contrast between how that conduct was described at the beginning of January, when the behaviour was being um, discovered and investigated, compared to what we will come on to see with some fairly serious concerns that were then later raised about three weeks later in the Without Prejudice letter. On the 22nd of January 2021, Mrs. Summer issued first proceedings in the Employment Tribunal, alleging, among other things, race, sex and pregnancy discrimination. And on the same day, the employer sends the without prejudice letter in question. And it's this letter that forms the heart of of the case and forms the heart of the uh, appeal. So in this letter, the employer does not say oh, we understand you've done a low-level data breach. We're feeling quite chill about that, but let's talk settlement. 
presumably it says something else. I think it would be fair to say that that wasn't the tenor of the the Without Prejudice letter that that was written. Uh, Basically, what the employer does is it sets out the conduct of of Mrs. Summer. And then the letter then goes on to raise serious concerns, referring to, in my view, understandably, the claimant's contractual obligations, contractual obligations to the employer, the implied term of trust and confidence, her obligations under the Data Protection Act and her regulatory obligation under the FCA Code of, uh, of Conduct to act within with integrity. So what kind of consequences was it threatening? Well, I mean, that's a very loaded way of describing the letter. What the letter was saying was, we have discovered your conduct. We're deeply concerned by it. We're going to investigate it. But if these things are proved then that's going to have some serious consequences. Amongst them are going to be that if you have knowingly behaved in the way that it appears you have, and if that's proved, then that's going to have all sorts of connotations and consequences for you. And you may well be of the view, although we haven't investigated this and formed a a clear view, these are problematic issues for you and you may want to consider settling. So it wasn't saying to the the claimant at, at that point that you have done these things, at a formative stage of the investigation, it's raising the concerns with Mrs. Summer and saying, look, this is what we've discovered. We're now going to investigate these, but this behaviour looks very, very serious. So what was the ET's beef with that? That sounds like a pretty reasonable letter. Yes. So the ET's beef with it essentially is, is that, number one, the last two allegations, i.e. breach of the Data Protection Act, well, that's actually a, an offence. That's a criminal offence. And of course, acting without integrity is it's a very serious regulatory issue, which, as we've said, lie in stark contrast to the internal letter, which seems to suggest that this was being viewed at least by one HR partner as being a low-level data breach. So the ET's concern is it's almost as if the employer is trying to persuade the employee to settle their case. Well, yes, in one sense, but every without prejudice letter is designed to encourage the employee to settle their case. There's, there's nothing exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. What the Employment Tribunal was concerned about in this case was, firstly, it suggested that the allegations had been grossly exaggerated. That was the view the Employment Tribunal took. And secondly, the, the Employment Tribunal took the view that there was no basis whatsoever to the concerns and the allegations being being raised. And as a result of that, the Employment Tribunal was of the view the conduct of the respondent was unambiguously improper, that it went further than was even exceptionally permitted in what it described as the normal hard-nosed negotiation between parties. But the EAT didn't think so. Yes, the EAT disagreed. There is a long line of authorities which say when dealing with issues of potential unambiguous impropriety, it is of fundamental importance that the judge, number one, scrupulously and jealously protects the without prejudice rule so that the rule itself doesn't become eroded. Secondly, even in circumstances where there is an improper interpretation of what was said or written, even where that's possible or even probable, that isn't enough. In order to to fall within the unambiguous impropriety exception, the conduct itself needs to be clear-cut, it needs to be egregious, it needs to be unambiguously improper. And third, 
where there is evidence relied upon to establish that unambiguous impropriety, the court must rigorously scrutinise the evidence in question. And that's precisely what the Employment Tribunal didn't do in this case. So what the tribunal should have done, if it's going to say your conduct is unambiguously improper because there's no basis to these allegations at all, then obviously what the employment tribunal has to do is then set out the alleged allegations and then analyse whether there is arguably or potentially a basis to those allegations. And if the tribunal had done that, the only conclusion it could have reached would have been, even if there's some inconsistency between what the employer had previously said and what it was saying in the without prejudice letter, the underlying allegations were plainly arguable. The claimant had removed confidential information. She had copied it to herself and she had blind copied it to her husband. And she'd done that for the purposes of her grievance and potential future employment tribunal litigation. As we all know, there's a line of authorities, including uh, Brando and Chadwick, which says that that is conduct which is at least arguably in breach of the implied term of trust and confidence and, of course, a breach of confidence. So that's the heart of it. If you are making an allegation against your employee in without prejudice correspondence, and the allegation is at least arguable, it's going to be on the right side of the line. Yes, it must be open to employers who are aware of potential issues of misconduct to raise those with existing employees and to say there are potentially going to be consequences to this, to this behaviour if it's proved. And it's going to be a very rare case indeed where raising those perfectly arguable points be a very rare case indeed, where in the absence of dishonesty, doing so is going to be a, is going to constitute unambiguous impropriety. So the classic example of a lever that an employer uses in without prejudice correspondence is a costs warning. So you're writing a letter to your employee in which you're saying your case is rubbish and uh, if you pursue it, we will pursue you for costs. And you as you know as the employer that you are pretty unlikely to get your costs because you are in the employment tribunal. Yeah. At what point would that kind of threat cross the line? Or are you basically fine as long as you have an arguable costs application? Well, take a step back from that. It's almost as if you were in the EAT with me because in part of the discussion I had with um, Mr Justice Bourne was whether it's permissible to be using things as levers to encourage em employees to settle or put pressure on litigants to settle. And of course, one of the points that I made is the cost regime, both before the Employment Tribunal and indeed Part 36 under the CPR, is designed to put pressure on the receiving party of the offer um, to settle. So there's absolutely nothing wrong in a negotiation of putting permissible pressure on the other side to settle. My view is that that, is, uh, that applies both in the employment tribunal and in the, uh, and in the civil courts. I think one always needs to be very careful when making allegations or raising concerns, especially to a litigant in person. But in circumstances where you have a perfectly arguable case to put, and, and you're expected, of course, where there is an issue of costs, to be warning the other side that their conduct is unreasonable or vexatious or, or whatever. This can be a very rare case that anyone is able to put to you that is constitutes unambiguous uh, impropriety. 
So what kind of conduct is capable of constituting unambiguous impropriety? Yeah, so the exception to that, of course, would be is if I were threatening, if we were in litigation against each other, and I was threatening you with costs, and the basis that I was threatening you with costs was dishonest. So I, I knew, for example, that you had not done um, the thing that I'm saying that you have done. And I'm dishonestly saying, you know, this is going to be, you know, X number of thousands of pounds worth of cost and, oh, you're going to lose your house and the rest of it. I know the state of my knowledge is I know that you are not guilty of the conduct in question. That sort of behaviour is the sort of thing that could be unambiguously improper. So I know there's case law on those ex- those kinds of extreme examples where, you know, it's fabricated allegations and threats to purge yourself and all that business. But the difficult case for me is Furster and Furster. Tell us about Furster and Furster and why this case is different from that case. So Furster and Furster is certainly a cautionary tale for lawyers drafting without prejudice communication. And it's certainly a judgment that I think anyone who is involved in carrying out without prejudice negotiations should read. The facts are worth just quickly cantering through. In the context of a Section 994 petition, two shareholders allege that they have become aware that a third has previously sworn false evidence regarding whether he held um, various bank accounts, various undeclared bank accounts, and that that false evidence could constitute contempt of court and lead to criminal proceedings, unless that third shareholder accepted a new significantly higher offer to purchase the two shareholders' shares. In short, what they're doing is they're saying, we've discovered that you've been naughty, and we're going to use that as a lever, effectively, to get more money out of you. So how is that different from Swiss Re? Well, I think it's different for a number of reasons. I mean, the, the reason why first is a cautionary tale is because what the court, and indeed the Court of Appeal, hold in that case is that what's unambiguously improper is that the discovery of that behaviour is used as a lever in order to get the money out of the, out of the, other, of the other side. It doesn't make any difference, the Court of Appeal says, whether or not the two shareholders had a genuine belief that the third shareholder had behaved as, as alleged. So that in itself looks concerning because it could be said in all cases that you are using, especially employment cases, that you are using your after-discovered knowledge about what someone has done as a lever to encourage them to settle their, their dispute. So what is the difference between Furster and Furster and the conduct in Swiss Re? Excellent question, Anna. Very pleased you asked. The answer is this, is that in Furster and Furster, there was no correlation at all between the new offer and the conduct that had been discovered and that was being relied upon. So it was just, I found out you've done this naughty thing, so give me a million pounds. I mean, it wasn't a million pounds. It wasn't a million pounds. But yeah, we have discovered that you have done something really naughty. And unless you give us this increased amount of money, that has nothing to do with how your behaviour has constituted the value of the shares or has improved our position in the litigation. We are just using your naughtiness as a way of squeezing out of you an increased amount of money that has nothing to do with the effect of your behaviour on the litigation. So one of the things the Court of Appeal says in Furster and Furster is that it would have been perfectly legitimate for the shareholders to say to the third shareholder, we have discovered this behaviour 
about you, that you have uh, these undisclosed uh, bank accounts. And the effects of that is that it affects the merits of our position, or it increases the value of the shareholding by this amount. And therefore, because of that, we're going to increase the amount we're asking for the shares. So we've discovered this behavior that has an effect on the value of, of the shareholding, and that means that we can increase the offer. That would have been a perfectly appropriate thing for them to have done, but that isn't the offer the Court of Appeal says that they made. What they did was they said, we've discovered this about you, and unless you increase or accept a substantially increased value, then we're going to use our ability to control the company to come after you for criminal proceedings and for contempt. So finally, what tips do you have for employers who are trying to draft without prejudice letter containing potentially serious allegations without crossing the line? So I think one of the things that benefited the employer in, in this case was the fact that it was writing these letters at a formative stage of its investigation. The advantage that gave Swiss Re in, in this case was able to present in its without prejudice letter these issues merely as concerns. So we've discovered that you've done X, Y, and Z. We're now going to investigate that and we're not prejudging what we're going to find. But these allegations, these concerns that we've got, if proved, are very, very serious. Much more difficult, I think, to try and package raising those early concerns while saying that we're not prejudging. Much more difficult, I think, for an employee to suggest that that is unambiguously improper to do. And indeed, it is precisely what an employer should be doing in circumstances of giving a, an employee a forewarning. But secondly, there is a tactical question, I think, in these sorts of issues, whether if you're going to make the approach to the other side, whether it should be writing, whether it should be done uh, orally. And I'm strongly of the view that setting it out in a carefully drafted letter, which has all the nuance that you're able to put into a carefully drafted letter, is definitely the way forward. Although, of course, there's a downside, of course, if it is written, that it will be absolutely clear to the tribunal or to the court what was said and what is alleged to be unambiguously improper. Despite that, I think written communications with these serious allegations is always the way. Ultimately, this case should provide some comfort to employers and solicitors that if they are making ordinary allegations, if they are saying things you would expect to see in without prejudice correspondence, whether that's laying out apparent misconduct, whether that's making costs warnings, that is not going to cross the line. That's a fair conclusion which would be this raising serious allegations, raising potentially criminal conduct, is always going to be starting from a position where you need to be very, very careful. But to put it the other way around, I think it would have sent some shockwaves across the city of London if this, what I view as being a perfectly normal without prejudice letter, had been found not only by the Employment Tribunal, but also by the EAT to have constituted unambiguous impropriety, simply because the employer at a formative stage was, was raising legitimate and perfectly arguable concerns about admitted behaviour of the employee. That was Andrew Edge talking to me about Swiss Re. You can subscribe to the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps, and you can email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com. 